The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Where do you turn when an abusive family, a history of physical pain, and an addiction to drugs leads to a near-death experience? And isn't this a question being asked by tens of thousands of teenagers today? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today's guest, Claudia Hopper, has a message from the 1960s that should resonate with many of today's teens. Claudia was a strong-willed child of the 60s who faced what many teens face today, a dysfunctional, abusive family, a strong, willful nature to survive, and an attraction, even addiction to drugs, to ease the pain of living. What was added to the mix was a childhood vision of a huge guardian angel and a near-death experience that ultimately helped guide her to a life of art and a career aimed at helping others. Claudia, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi. Hi, I'm glad you're with us. Um, Claudia, your story reflects the lives of many, many teens I've encountered in my work as a chaplain. But you went part of, through this as part of my generation. Your parents were what I would term severely Christian, yet the family was dysfunctional and you were determined not to be crushed by it all. And I wonder, perhaps we could start with your vision of the angel. Sure. Um, I was fighting with some friends um, down this wonderful steep slope that went into the backyard, of uh, side yard of where we were living in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was a nice freezing cold day and our dog was out sliding with us. And um, I, uh, on the edge of the lawn in the back was a line of trees. And just before this line of trees, right near them, was this huge, huge angel, taller than the trees. So it was probably 50 or 60 feet tall. And um, it was dressed in um, these beautiful colors that were, it was like a robe, but it was like more than one outfit, I think. It, it had a lot of clothes on it. With gold and silver and white and red and green and blue, um, multiple color, colored um, robe that it wore, and it was really, really beautiful. And I was really thrilled to see it because I knew what it was. I knew it was an angel, and I said, "Look at that!" to my friends, and they said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Look at that angel." They said, "There's nothing there." I said, "No, no, no, no! You just look." I just kept trying to get them to see it. I even wanted my dog to see it. But uh, I was the only one who did. <laughs> so that angel was definitely intended for you. Um, now, how old were you when that happened? I was about eight or nine. I'm not exactly sure. It was either 1952 or 53. Okay. About eight or and nine. then, and you you were living through a difficult uh, childhood. Um, I, and I, I, I mentioned that you were willful and strong-willed in my introduction. And I wonder if you could tell the story about how your back got broken, just as an indication of how strong-willed you were. Well, I'm 5'8", and I was close to this height when I was 12 years. I was actually this height when I was 12 years old. I didn't grow after that, um, but I was sure I was going to. But our gym teacher had us um, uh, do a tumbling exercise. He had lined all the tumbling mats in a long, long line down the length of the gym. And then he had all the girls. It was just girls' gym for the whole junior high school. And at the time when I was going to junior high school, there were um, 15 in my class, and there were probably 10 or 11 in the class before me, and probably 
16 or 17 in the class afterwards. So, you know, 6th, 7th, and 8th grades had very few kids altogether. And then maybe half of those were girls, so there weren't that many girls altogether. But the line was um, arranged by height, the smallest in the front, the tallest in the back. I was the next to the tallest girl. And um, he had all this little girls. This must have been the gym teacher's dream of, of watching all these little girls tumbling down this mat. Um, and um, everybody was fine until it came to be my turn to tumble and I tumbled, and then I was, you know, we were supposed to tumble and tumble and tumble all the way down the mats. And uh, when the girl behind me took her first tumble, her feet landed on the base of my spine. And because um, he misjudged the distance be- that we would need to separate us so that we wouldn't hurt each other. And yes. it was excruciating, unbelievable, horrible pain um, that I felt. And um, I was screaming and yelling, and, um, and and I wanted to go down to the um, place where our, the girls' bathroom was downstairs in the gym, and I wanted to go down there and change my clothes because I wanted to get out, I wanted to get away from all the and just you know be by myself. And that was kind of the way I took care of things. And um, I went down there, and I was screaming and yelling and crying. And they, my the gym teacher said, "We've got to call your parents." I said, "Oh no, I'll be fine. Don't call my parents." And I was downstairs and my friend came down to see me who was worried she got out of the gym class and came down and she said we've got to call your parents I said no 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 the reason I didn't want them to call was because in the grade above me us was Karen Sweetser and Karen Sweetser had broken her back that year and she had to wear this horrible brace that went from her neck down sort of close to her crotch and it was in two pieces there was a front half and a back half and they clamped together so that her spine was in the right, I guess, position or something, so that she mm-hmm. wouldn't end up with some kind of a deformity or whatever. Anyway, or re-injuring it, and um, and we it took we were I was in Girl Scouts, and our Girl Scout leader took us to swimming lessons during the winter over in a pool in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, and um, it was really horrible to watch her getting in and out of her bathing suit because she had to put it in on underneath her cast. And her brace, and I, I, I could only imagine having to do something as horrible as that was what she had to go through, and I couldn't dream of doing it. I just, I couldn't imagine myself doing it. So, I, re, I was refusing to go to the doctor because I was imagining myself having to wear a brace and having to go through the same things that Karen Sweetser did, and I just refused to do it. So I didn't let them tell my parents, and I didn't tell my parents when I went home, and I don't know how I made it home because it was just horrible, horrible, horrible pain. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I had to walk home, which was about a half a mile. So it was a half mile back and forth to school each day. Wow. And, uh, and you uh, lived with a broken back all that time? When did yeah. you discover that it actually had been broken? It wasn't discovered until probably about 10 or 11 years later when I was going to chiropractic because I was just uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. And they took an x-ray and said, oh, when did you break your back? And I said, what do you mean? And he showed me where the vertebrae had fused together. It was just exactly where that girl had landed on my back with her feet wow. when she was tumbling. And um, so I said, oh, it was in grade six. So that was about 10 or so. Well, well, you were certainly setting yourself up to be a, a child of the 60s with a, a love of freedom and all of that. But tell, tell us, uh, when did you get started into drugs? How did that happen? Oh, that happened, well, I tried pot when I was in Marlboro College. 
and I didn't like it. It made me sleepy. Um, so um, that wasn't too particularly attractive. But then when I was in art school, um, there was, of course, there were drugs all around in the 60s, and I didn't take any when I was in art school, believe it or not. Um, and then um, uh, I moved to a different place to live, and um, it burned down. And I lost all my kitty cats in the fire and a whole bunch uh-huh. of wonderful stuff. And um, I came home from work that night. I was, I was making uh, my living by being a, an art model. And um, I came home from work. It was a, a night in March. It was 1968. And um, the uh, road looked so beautiful. It was all shiny. And there were red lights. And it really looked beautiful. And I said, oh, God, what's that? And then I realized I got closer. It was a fire truck, and I was coming down the road from where the, the, the uh, bus, the trolley had stopped, uh, which was kind of a ways up the hill, the road. And um, <clears throat> uh, when I realized what had happened, it was the building that I lived in, and it was the floor in which I lived, which had burned out. And um, uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, oh, originally was how how do you start yeah, yeah. How into the started? heavier oh, drugs? That's when I, I ended up moving to New York City after that. Um, yes, and um, uh, because um, things kind of fell apart in my life with the uh, fire, and it was really horrendously uh, horrible. And um, there's nothing quite like fire. Fire is one of those things. It's 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 alone in its horribleness like death is or suicide it's it's right up there with one of the primal yes. events that can occur to someone who that you you there's nothing similar except for death and especially when and you, especially when you lose pets that you love oh yeah and i lost a lot of pets i was kind of a cat fool when i was a kid and a <laughs> young person in art school and um so uh, when i went to new york i ended up taking more drugs i had been taking some pot things like that um using pot when I was in living at that place where it was at the where the fire was. My boyfriend was a school was a medical student at Harvard and um he made his own mescaline and um and I thought that was pretty interesting and um and we smoked hash and it all was agreed it all agreed with me. It didn't strike me as making me hungry or sleepy like it did when I was a few years younger when I was a college but two two years three years younger so anyhow i ended up moving to new york and that's where i got into drugs in a big way now today one of the most popular drugs unfortunately is heroin with the teenagers and that was drug that um that you got into and and ultimately caused your near-death experience so could you tell us about that yeah well i started i started taking it because um it just seemed like the awfulest thing i could do and and I, I liked the idea of going down as low as I possibly could. I, I, I felt like I was, uh, I had no, um, it, it's, it's hard for me to put myself back exactly in that kind of frame of mind because I was, I, I sort of, I came out of it so successfully, but, um, at the time, um, I really wanted to go down hill and, I wanted to experience things. I was very, very poor, and I was kind of a street person, and um, I actually was a street person, so I was living kind of um, 
the, in the, it was absolutely no money in New York City. We lost the place we lived and it didn't have food and didn't have a place to, way to cook and things. So it was a real street type urchin lifestyle. So, um, eventually I came back to, to Massachusetts because I lost the place I was living in New York. And, um, uh, I was, I was picking up, um, lots of, uh, heroin that was left behind in phone booths in secret places and phone booths in secret phone booths around the city of Boston and delivering it to other people. Um, and for that I would get paid in bags of heroin and I was, uh, caught with 10 bags of heroin and six sets of works by a police officer one night. Um, and that's kind of the beginning of me getting out of that whole syndrome. Mm. <clears throat> now it was a, it was either an overdose or perhaps, uh, an attempted suicide that led you to your near death experience. Okay. Yes. Right. Before that, before that time when I got caught, I did have an overdose and I was living on Fort Hill, which is the same, sort of close to the same neighborhood where I had the fire, but it was after the fire. And, um, uh, I shot up some heroin and it didn't sit well with me. I immediately overdosed and I was doing it alone. And, um, so, uh, it, I wasn't just, the only reason I was discovered because, because I made such a large crash when I ended up on the floor. And, um, my friend was in the other room. Uh, I don't know what she was doing, but she, uh, she came out and found me uh, lying on the floor. And I remember immediately when I was having this experience, I felt like I was leaving. And I wanted to leave as fast as possible. I didn't want to be here anymore. So I thought the way to speed it up would be to put myself in a streamlined position, <laughs> even though I, I was basically out of, uh, unconscious or something. I was able to do that. I put my hands down by my sides so I could go fast, fast, fast away from being here on this earth, and um, I felt like I was moving down a tunnel. It really did feel like a tunnel, and I was going really fast. I was going faster and faster and faster, and I could see light at the end of the tunnel, and I was I was going towards that. Had feet first, my head was um, well. Um, I could see over my feet and what was ahead, but a long way down was this like little tiny bit of light, and. Um, and as I was going, and as I was leaving, and even at the very beginning of it, it felt absolutely amazing. It felt like the beyond anything one could possibly imagine. It was, I told Lee a little while ago, and we were going on a car ride together, that it was the ultimate acceptance. It was a feeling of love and being accepted unlike anything one could imagine. And it was something you didn't want to be away from. It was just absolute perfection. It was sort of like the answer to everything, you know, was, yes. was feeling really uh, okay. And I'll, I want to make a slight detour right now. I want to say that one of the reasons people take heroin and why the reason I took heroin is because when while you're in, uh, inebriated from it, with it, everything mm-hmm. is okay for those few moments or hour or whatever, to, whatever long it lasts. It takes away pain in a way that is the pain is still there, but it's okay to have the pain. And that's why narcotics are so effective now, because people are living with such 
conflicting um, uh, messages and needs and um, and agendas. Uh, all, 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 everybody is. It's, it's a very, very hard time to be alive, especially, I think, for kids who come from backgrounds that aren't strong and, um, and give them feeling of uh, a solid sense of self. So going back to this story, um, uh, it, it was... It was an amazing, amazing, amazing experience, and I definitely was on my way out, and I was really happy to be going. And my friend Leslie heard me crash, and she somehow got me to come back. She roused me somehow. I remember her kind of pulling and pushing at my body and trying to sit me up or something and yelling at me and come back, come back, and things like that. And, and I did come back, but it, it, I really didn't want to. I wanted to be gone, and um, from then uh, I didn't take any more heroin except for. Uh, well, I did. I did. I know I was continuing to take it after the overdose. That's right. I continued to take it. Uh, that didn't stop me until you were until you were caught. And uh... yeah, when I was caught, then I realized um, that was I had a crippled hemophiliac boyfriend. And um, he was pleading, and we needed to get him down to the Tufts Medical Center so he could get a factor eight shot to help him with the clotting factor. And um, we borrowed his mother's car, and I was driving it, and we ran out of about a block and a half or two blocks away from the Tufts Medical Center down the south end of Boston. And um, it was very late at night. It was probably around 1 or 2 in the morning, so there was, the streets were deserted. And um, uh, I... I said, okay, Ricky, you steer and I'll push the car. So I, I yanked him over to the, he was around my side and a little smaller. Um, and I was able to pull him over to the front seat because he was able, he was basically helpless. He was in so much pain. And, um, and he could steer. And, um, we got down, we were, I was pushing the car and I had this gold cigarette case in my right pocket of my sweater. It was kind of a big cardigan sweater I was wearing. And, um, cotton cardigan and um, acrylic or something. And I, I was, so it was baggy sweater and I was pushing this car and I was running as fast as I could with this car, pushing it down the road and I didn't realize it. But at some point, the cigarette case fell out of my pocket. And for some reason, I looked back because I guess I realized that my pocket was empty or something. I looked back and there was a cigarette case lying in the road this gold gleaming cigarette case in the middle of the road. And then off farther back, about a block or a block and a half away, I could see a beat cop coming around the corner. And I said, oh, to myself, that's trouble. And then again, at the very same moment or two, a big, huge, old Chevy sedan came rumbling up. And it was full of these drunken sailors and a couple of prostitutes. And they pulled up and they said, hey, baby, what's happening? And I told them what happened. I told them what I they could, so everybody could see the cigarette case up on the road. So they said, hop in, we'll drive around the block and you can pick it up on the way, uh, way, way by. We'll open the door and you can just pick it up. And so we went around the block and came back. And when, by the time we went around the block to come back, the guy, the cop was standing at the car with Ricky. The car, the car door was open and he was talking to Ricky. And I knew that if he stayed there talking to Ricky, Ricky would die because he would be bleeding internally. And um, he had to get to the hospital, and 
so I told these guys to stop, let me out. And they said, "Oh no, you're not gonna, we're not gonna let you out. You're gonna go to, you're gonna get in trouble. You're gonna go to jail." And I said, "No, no, no." So I ended up jumping out of the car. I was on the passenger side, and I back seat, and I jumped out. Um, and we, we were going pretty slow, and I did not get hurt. But I think one of the things about being young and being crazy, like I, like I was, is that. And and I had that angel protecting me. Is I did not get hurt. I just mm-hmm. rolled over, rolled on the ground, and, and got up and ran over and pushed, shoved the cop. <laughs> I said, "Excuse me," and I had to get ready to get to the hospital. And he said, "Oh, oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. You have to tell me the truth. You have to tell me what the what this is." And I said, "I don't know what you're talking about." And I pushed him again, and he he said, "No, wait a minute." If and they put his hand up to a call box. At that time, there weren't anything like we have now, cell phones. There were these boxes that were on these poles around the city, either for fire or police. And they were you could open the door, and there would be a lever, and you could pull the lever, and that would signal to the police, which if it was a police box or the fire department, mm-hmm. the fire box, to come to where that location was because there was something, someone in great need. So he had his finger on the call box. He had, he had actually opened the door, and his finger was on the lever, and he said, if you don't tell me the truth about yourself and what's going on, I'm going to push this lever. Well, I, I knew he was telling the truth because that's all he had to do. It's a very simple movement with his finger. So uh, I stayed there for about three hours talking with him and crying and explaining my life and how I was brought up and what happened, what my life was like. And Ricky just sat there in a heap, you know, basically almost uh-huh. passed out. And and he said, the cop said, you know, this guy doesn't give a damn about you. He said, I don't know why you're you're so concerned about him. He doesn't care about you at all. And I said, that's not the point. The point is he needs to go to the doctor. And I need to get him to the doctor, to, to the fact, to the, to, to a tough medical center, which was about a half a block away at that point where we were. And, um, he he told me that if I promised I would never do it again, he would let me go. And I could go to the hospital and get a wheelchair and get Ricky. So that's a, that's the deal I struck. I think I think your angel was protecting Ricky as well as you. But what a generous I thing! I mean, you, you knew. Me. I think so it's everybody who's who's in relation with me also is protected because that's kind of the way it works. Oh. I want to ask you just quickly because I know you tried psychedelics as well. Yeah. Um, how would you compare your near-death experience to, say, uh, LSD? Um, well, I loved LSD. I loved LSD and I loved heroin. I took those drugs a lot, kind of sometimes together and sometimes in succession. Um, I loved sort of going away the way you do with LSD and going into a kind of a at least we did. I did. I did, and some of the experiences I had, I felt like I was in outer space, and I was enjoying a perspective that was on impossible in the normal state of affairs and as a human being. But it was really amazing to be at such a distance removed from our world and to see the beautifulness of every single thing and every single. Um, moment in time as it was being experienced, that, that, so in some ways there was this hugeness that was similar to some degree. Um, 
it was singular to me in that it wasn't the same as feeling like I was in perfect acceptance. That was what the difference was. Right. That love, that love doesn't necessarily, uh, conjure itself the way an NDE brings in. And, you know, and I, I don't know. I have not, um, read about their NDEs with other people or listened to shows because I don't have a computer, so I don't know how it works, how other people's experience. <laughs> get so, yourself um, a computer and listen to this program. <laughs> I will. Don't you worry. I will eventually get that together. Um, uh, Claudia, um, I do want to ask you, um, uh, did, do you, would you say, um, and I'm just sort of off the top of my head, mm-hmm. off the top of my heading it here, would you say that LSD is more earth oriented or more life oriented and NDEs are more, um, uh, bring the spiritual out? I think NDEs are, um, everything that is, it, it, it's, it's beyond um, um, Earth. Mm. It's beyond our experience of of family and and community and everything and and politics. It's 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 beyond life here. It's 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 sort of what we. It's the begin. It, it's a little bit like imagining what it, things might be like, but it's way beyond that. And LSD is more like how life is. In, in a way that's brought into such magnificent detail and and um, exquisite um, sort of illumination, but it's, there's a difference between the two. It's not about the acceptance so much. It's about being shown how everything is kind of interconnected and how it's all um, this magnificent mystery. So there's a there is a definite similarity, but it's really not for me. It wasn't. Like the near death experience was was kind of a pivotal moment in my life that nothing could com- compare to. And then I must I must say my darling friend Leslie, who saved me, died about twenty years later from a heroin overdose, and I still feel sad. She was my my beloved friend, and I I still miss her every day. I really wish I was there to help her to save her. Yes. Well, I'm glad she was there to save you. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, listen, um, t- talk a little about um, how you came. Now, you know, you got, you were able to bring yourself out of this addiction, and you went on to um, study more art. You went to Europe well, and went to art museums, and tell well, us a little I about actually, that. I went to I went to Europe before I got into the drugs. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was in Europe in '66. I took a year of uh, a semester. My, my fall semester of 1966 off and went to Europe. I had worked all summer long um, and saved up enough money. I saved $800, and I paid my rent, and I paid for all my bills. Um, money was different in those days. And uh, my mother, my grandmother and my grandfather gave me $200. So I had $1,000, and I spent nine weeks in Europe going to all, all the art museums I could go to except Italy. Italy had floods that summer, that year, and they wanted American tourists to come over and clean mud off of art. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was clean art. <laughs> I, I remember that. It. I remember all the destruction in Florence that, uh, that yeah, took was, place. It was really uh, horrible. And, uh, yeah. you know, if I were older and I'd seen the art before, but I was getting it, I was going to all the museums I could possibly go to. And it was, and uh, you know, I, I've, I, I've got to go back to the Prado. You know, I, I've got to go see the, all the Goyas again. I saw them when I was so young. I just want to see them all again. And all the Bregels and, 
you know, in different museums. It was it was just the most amazing, wonderful thing. I'm so glad I did that for myself. So, uh, well, you, following my you showed chart, me a, you showed me a painting that you did that re- reminded me very much of George McGray, and I, I think is that would you say that's your style of art now? Is realism and surrealism mixed together? Yeah, yeah. I call myself a Dada, a New Age Dada. New Age Dada. Oh. The ADA, but, you know, Marcel Duchamp. But, it's, like but at the same time, you 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 uh, were doing art. You went on to um, help. Uh, you became a caregiver to the disabled and the elderly with well, Alzheimer's. I, and yeah, so, that wasn't so, at the same time. That was after. Okay, that was after the after. your recovery. Yeah, I, I did not get into t- to, to doing caregiving um, until um, after graduate school. Well, I was in. I, I went to Nova Scotia to finish undergraduate school. This is a, you don't know anything about this, but I had dropped out of art school um, it, after two years, even though it took me about three years to do two years because of that interrupted semester. And um, I dropped out, and I didn't go back till 1980 when I went back to Goddard College to finish my ma- my bachelor's degree. And I did it on an adult degree program with independent study. And I was living in Nova Scotia while I did that. And I would come back every six months for two weeks to review the work I had done and plan the work I was going to do for the next six months. And that's after that, well, while I was there, I got into some home care work. And um, when I came back to go to graduate school to the, to the States, I, got, I, I, I had to put my, I had to work, I've always had to work to put myself through life. And um, one of the things I did was, I've always done cleaning houses, but um, what, one of the other things I started doing was helping t- people who needed. I took care of a man with aphasia and learned about that. And it got. And when I was living in Nova Scotia, I took care of an old a friend's grandmother who was really, really old. I cleaned her house. I did chores for her and things like that. And I realized I really liked that kind of helping people because I learned so much. And yes. it was it was fascinating. So I, did, well, I got I- more into it when I came back. To the <laughs> Well, Claudia, I, I think our audience has learned a lot from this conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. Oh, gosh. But, well, sorry. Uh, that, well, that's my thanks to you, Claudia, for sharing your, your NDE and your, your story, the story of your life, which so parallels so many teen lives of today. Oh. And if the listeners would like to hear the show again or any other of our previous programs, uh, they should visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANDS, please visit that website at iands.org. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.